0: next week as i've already mentioned we're returning to an in-person worship service format we have officially gone 76 days or will have officially gone 76 days or 11 weeks without assembling in person and even though that service isn't going to be able to be attended by everyone and even though The seating arrangement is going to be a little strange, and the order of the service is going to be unique, and we're still not going to be conducting Bible classes. Even though all those things are going to be different, we're at least entering the first stages of a return to normal. But today, I want to encourage us not to return to normal. Let me explain what I mean. This near three-month experience of social distancing has changed our lives forever. In some ways, it's changed our lives for the better, and in some ways, it's changed our lives for the worse. But one thing is for certain, nothing will ever quite be the same, at least in our lifetime. In our lifetime, we will forever be stained by the experience of this pandemic. For some of us, it will make us more weary of germs. For some of us, it's going to make us more weary of government. For some of us, it's going to make us more conscious of time management. And, and for some of us, it's going to make us more conscious of our finances. For some of us, it's going, this experience is going to make us more appreciative of certain occupations, like teachers, nurses, medical professionals, all And for some of us, it's going to make us more appreciative of of the outdoors and just going outside. The point is that this experience is going to affect all of us in some way, shape, or form that will prevent us from ever really returning to what we once called normal. And, And that awareness that we can't return to normal, at least the way we used to know it, it should be applied to our spiritual lives as well. And today I'm going to share with you three ways that I think we should not return to normal, spiritually speaking. And I want to begin with this. Don't return to have to. Today we're going to look at three things we should not return to that may have been normal for us. And the first is to not return to have to. I want you to think about Jonah for a moment. The thing that is remarkable about Jonah's story is that he got got a do-over. He got a second chance. He he got to return and redo his response to God's call. Jonah is the quintessential second chance story. And as you may recall, Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Jonah did not want to do the task that God called him to do. In Jonah chapter 1 and verse 2, we learn that God instructed him, go to Nineveh call out against it. But in the very next verse, in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 3, we learn that Jonah fled to Tarshish. And his goal was to get away from the presence of the Lord. As we all know, that never works because the omnipresent and omniscient God is the undefeated hide-and-seek champion. Just ask Adam and Eve. But so God catches up to Jonah as he's sailing across the Mediterranean Sea and God creates a boat sinking storm that causes Jonah to realize his only option is to be thrown overboard and it's then that God rescues Jonah from drowning by having a great fish swallow him in the belly of that fish Jonah came to his sen- came to his senses and he repented the whole of Jonah chapter 2 records A prayer from inside this fish. And in that prayer, Jonah surrendered himself to the will of God. He said, I will sacrifice to you and what I have vowed I will pay in Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9. In other words, Jonah said, I will prioritize you. I will do what you have asked me to do now. And because of Jonah's penitent heart, God made the fish spit him out on dry land and gave him a second chance to obey that go to Nineveh order. And this time, Jonah didn't run. Jonah didn't complain about the assignment. He didn't beg for another option. He didn't even hesitate. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 2 simply says that in response to God's assignment, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So Jonah got a second chance. And at first glance, it appears that Jonah's heart was so changed that his He's willing to do whatever God asked him to do. You see, back in Jonah chapter 1, the assignment was something he had to do, but he didn't want to do, so he ran away. Here in Jonah chapter 3, the assignment was something he had to do, and based on his initial response, it seems like it is now also something he wants to do. But that all changes when you get to Jonah chapter 4. It becomes apparent that even though Jonah fulfilled God's assignment, he still viewed it as something he had to do instead of something he wanted to do or something he got to do. This is evident in Jonah chapter 4 and verse 1 where we learn that Jonah was displeased and angry when he realized that God showed mercy to Nineveh. So Jonah had been given a second chance to do the right thing, but even though he did exactly what God asked him to do, Jonah still did the wrong thing because he never changed his heart. He viewed God's will with a have-to mentality instead of a get-to mentality. And here's the point. As we return from this situation that has prevented us from being able to worship as an assembled body, from being able to fellowship with one another, from being able to study and discuss and share insights from Scripture in one another's presence, as we return from this situation, it's my prayer that unlike Jonah, we stop seeing these God-given responsibilities as have-tos and start seeing them as get-tos. God wants us to not just do what He asks because it's expected, but also because it's the desire of His heart. Our heart, I should say. See, that's the underlying expectation of the greatest command. If you turn over to Mark chapter 12, you read the greatest command, in particular in Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. You see that the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. You are likely familiar with that passage. That's not new information to you. But why did Jesus give the greatest command? He was was responding to a question posed earlier. And the question was, which commandment is the most important of all? That's what Jesus is responding to when he tells us to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But what I really want you to notice today, what I really want you to notice in Mark chapter 12, is how the conversation continued after Jesus gave the greatest command. Because if you look down at verse 33, the scribe who asked Jesus the question, which commandment is the most important of all, the scribe that asked that question and heard Jesus' answer affirmed the truth of Jesus' answer. He didn't try to debate Jesus. He agreed with Jesus, and he said this, To love God with all your heart with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, this scribe said that love is more important than duty. Burnt offerings and sacrifices were part of the responsibilities of the Jews. It was their duty. It was what they had to do. And this scribe understood that what God really wants is for us to want to do these things because we love Him. And upon hearing that, 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 that scribe's response, do you know what Jesus said? He said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus agreed that God desires hearts that desire Him. That God doesn't want us to just look at our responsibilities as something we have to do, but as something we want to do, as something we get to do. So as we return, let's leave behind the have-to mentality. Let's move forward with the get-to mentality, knowing that that's what brings joy to the heart of God. Don't return with have-to. Return with get-to. Not only that, but as we return, let's not return to our comfort zones. Let's not return to what's comfortable. You know, one of the most disappointing moments in all of the Old Testament is when the Israelites respond to the report of the 12 spies. At that point in the Exodus story, the Israelites had witnessed God's Power When he brought the plagues on Egypt and when he parted the Red Sea for their safe passage. They had witnessed God's continual presence as he led them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They had witnessed his provisions as he dropped manna on the ground every morning and sent quail in the evening and made fresh water miraculously available on multiple occasions. In other words, at this point in their story, the Israelites' faith in God should have been solidified. They should have been at the point where whatever he asked them to do, they do it unhesitatingly because they trust him. But according to Numbers chapter 13, verse 1, God requested that Moses send men to spy out the land of Canaan. I want you to think for a moment why, why did God want Moses to do this? Did God need to know the layout of the land? He created it, so he already knew it. Did he need to know the strength of the military forces of the land's inhabitants? Absolutely not. God alone outnumbered those forces, so it doesn't matter to him how big their armies are. The point is this, that there is nothing those spies could have discovered or reported that would have benefited God. However, God still commissioned these spies. And it was their assignment to report on military and economic matters. And they did their job. They returned from spying out the land, and their report was unanimous on two points. First, the land is ideal. The land is perfect. And second, the people are strong. They've got fortified cities. They're bigger than we are. And it's here that we discover the point of God commissioning the spies. He had the spies go investigate the land so that they would discover just how great the land is and just how much they needed God to take it. And it's that latter point that really tested the faith of the Israelites. Two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, when they came back, they encouraged the people to go up and occupy the land. They reasoned that if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. But the people didn't listen to Caleb and Joshua. They listened to the other 10 spies who said, we're not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are in Numbers chapter 13 and verse 31. Here they are on the precipice of a new land, a land promised to them by God, a land that is their inheritance as a people, and they're refusing to go because doing so would be uncomfortable. Some of them, if you look at numbers chapter 14 and verse three, some of those Israelites even said that it would be better for them to return to Egypt. Really? Returning to a place where you were a slave held in captivity is better than going to fight for a land that is yours. You know the reason why some of those Israelites wanted to return back to Egypt? The reason they said it would be better for them to go back to Egypt was because Egypt was comfortable. It was comfortable in the sense that you knew what to expect. There were no surprises. There were no dangers. There were no risks. It was safe and secure because it was consistent and predictable. Was it enjoyable to be slave labor for Pharaoh? No. Was it burdensome? Yes. But they knew what they had to do. Everything was predictable. And the problem is that for a great many of these Israelites, despite all that God had done for them, they still didn't fully trust God. Their faith had not progressed during all of those years that they had been journeying from Egypt to the promised land. Instead of having their faith progress, it actually regressed. And their lack of faith development caused them to see safety in what they knew rather than opportunity in what awaited them. And here's the point. It's going to be very easy for us to return to our comfort zones, just like it was for the Israelites to consider returning to theirs. But here's the problem with comfort zones comfort zones give us a false sense of security. Comfort zones cause us to think that we are spiritually safe because we are spiritually consistent. But comfort zones are not an appropriate tool for measuring spiritual maturity, because what happens when we stay in the confines of our spiritual comfort zones is that we stop progressing. That means comfort zones actually create spiritual stagnation. I've used that word a lot in the past few months, stagnation. And as I've mentioned many times in the past few months, stagnant water is water that lacks movement. And as a result of that lack of movement, it regresses from a state of drinkability to a state of undrinkability. And the truth is, the truth is that a faith that isn't growing is a faith that is regressing. So when we retreat to our comfort zones, we're choosing to inhibit our faith rather than expand it. And I want you to think for a moment, about all the things the Bible has to say about faith. The Bible says that without faith it's impossible to please God in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. The Bible says that we are to walk by faith and not by sight in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. The Bible says that faith must be tested in order for its authenticity to be proven in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And the Bible says that we are to make every effort to supplement our faith by developing the characteristics of, of goodness, of knowledge, of self-control, perseverance, godliness, kindness, and love in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-7. through 7. You see, the point is this, that in order for us to be pleasing to God, we have to step out of our comfort zones so that our faith can be tested and so that our faith can grow. And nowhere is this better demonstrated than in the life of Peter. Peter is often criticized because of that walking on water mishap. But I want you to think about that moment as Peter is in that boat and he sees Jesus walking on the water and Peter, with all the other apostles present, Peter is bold enough in his faith To request to join Jesus. You see, we criticize Peter because he sank after initially walking on water. But shouldn't Peter also be commended because he was willing to get out of the boat? The boat was comfortable, the the boat was safe, the boat lacked danger. But Peter didn't want to be in the boat. Peter wanted to be where Jesus was, and that necessitated that he abandoned his comfort zone. You see, as we return, let's not return like the Israelites who faithlessly wanted to go back to their comfort zone. Instead, let's return like Peter, who was willing to step out of the comfort of that boat and test his faith. Let's return not to the comfort zones that we've experienced so many times. Let's return in a step of faith Fulfilling all that God desires of us and expanding the borders of his kingdom in the process. Let's not return to comfort zones. And let's also not return to sin. One of the most notorious examples of what not to do in the Old Testament has to go to Lot's wife. You may recall that Lot and his family, which consisted of his wife and two daughters, that they were allowed to flee Sodom before God destroyed it. And as they left, they were strictly instructed by angels in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 17 to not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. But as you likely know, we're told in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 26 that Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. Now, doesn't it seem a little overboard to turn someone into a pillar of salt just for looking over their shoulder at something? And if just looking at Sodom was the problem, then why didn't Abraham suffer any consequences when he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and witnessed the smoke of the land rising like the smoke of a furnace in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 28? Why is only Lot's wife being punished if the big issue is looking at this city. Well, here's the thing. Lot's wife did more than just look at Sodom. She tried to return to Sodom. You have to remember the angels specifically instructed them to not look back or stop when they left Sodom. Their instruction emphasized continued movement away from the condemned cities. In looking back, Lot's wife She stopped moving. And this is apparent from something Jesus said over in Luke chapter 17, verse 31 and 32. He provided a reference in passing to Lot's wife. In that passage of Luke chapter 17, Jesus was expounding to his disciples on his answer to a question that the Pharisees had asked about the coming of the kingdom of God. And if you look at verse 31 and 32 of Luke 17, Jesus said, On that day, let the one who is on the housetop not come down to take them away, and let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Jesus clearly implied here that Lot's wife turned back, that Lot's wife returned to Sodom. See, she didn't disobey because she glanced over her shoulder to take a look at Sodom. She disobeyed because she tried to go back to Sodom. But why would she want to go back there? I think it's because she stopped seeing Sodom's sin. In other words, over time, she acclimated to Sodom. And as she acclimated, she grew less and less offended by Sodom. You can see how this tolerance of Sodom grows as the distance between Lot's family and that city shrank. Originally, back in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 2, we're told that Lot's family settled among the cities of the valley and moved as far as Sodom. That terminology seems to indicate that they live close to, but not necessarily in, the city of Sodom itself. Well, that was Genesis chapter 13. By Genesis chapter 14, things have changed because in verse 12 of Genesis 14, we're told that Lot was dwelling in Sodom. That means his family had relocated from outside the city limits to inside the city limits. And then by the time you get to Genesis chapter 19, when this city is destroyed, we discover that Lot's family had integrated into the city. Lot is sitting at the gate of Sodom when those angels arrive. And and that position at the city gates, at the very least, implies he was doing business, and at the very most, implies that he was a community leader. But not only that, we can read down in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 19 that Lot had allowed his daughters to be engaged to some of the citizens of Sodom. They had fully integrated into the city. And all of this indicates that Lot's family had become tolerant of Sodom. In their minds, They were just peacefully coexisting with their neighbors, neither participating in their sins nor expressly condemning their sins. And after a while, Sodom became so normal to Lot's wife that she no longer recognized or even acknowledged that it was sinful. And here's the point. We can be just like Lot's wife. We can become so acclimated to, so desensitized to, so accustomed to sin that it becomes something we tolerate and accept as normal. And the problem with that is that the Bible declares that there are some things God does not tolerate. And that means there are some things that we cannot tolerate. In fact, if you journey through the Bible, you'll find that there are some things that God just flat out hates. We're told in Proverbs chapter 6 that God hates pride, God hates lying, God hates violence and evil and divisiveness. When you really examine the things that God is said to hate in scripture, it boils down to this. God hates whatever is contrary to his nature. And as his children We are expected to not only love that which God loves, but we also are to hate that which God hates. Psalm chapter 97, verses 9 and 10, it tells us, or it says, You who love the Lord, hate evil. Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. And Amos chapter 5 and verse 15 just simply says, Hate evil and love good. Those scriptures indicate that we're to share God's sentiment toward that which is sinful because we, we are His children. But an acclimated life does not hate what God hates. A desensitized mind does not hate what God hates. A tolerant heart does not hate what God hates. So here's the question we all need to ask ourselves. Have I become tolerant of something that God is intolerant? have i accepted something that is completely unacceptable to god have i grown desensitized to something that god hates because here's the thing if i think that i can allow sin to coexist with god's spirit in my life then i'm no different than lot's wife paul pointed out the flaw of thinking like this when he rhetorically asked in second corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14 what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? If you keep reading in Second Corinthians chapter six, you'll, you'll see in verse 16 that, that Paul goes on to identify us as the temple of the living God. And keep going into chapter seven. And in Second Corinthians chapter seven and verse one, here's the instruction that Paul gave to his readers and to us. He said, "Cleanse yourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying don't return to sin. Return cleansed. Here's why I mention this today. We're on the precipice of some things returning to Normal. And the whole point of this lesson has been to determine whether or not there are some aspects of our spiritual life that have been considered normal, but are absolutely abnormal in the life of a Christian. And I bring these things up today because there are certain points in time that provide perfect opportunities for a fresh start. The beginning of a new year, the start of a new job, the return from summer break, All of those times are ideal opportunities for a fresh start. And right now, as we come to the end of this prolonged physical separation, and we look forward to the joy and the encouragement and the benefits of coming back together, right now is the perfect opportunity to return fresh, to return renewed, to return changed, to return better. But don't, Return to normal if normal involved comfort zones, if normal involved have tos, if normal involved tolerance of sin. And the very reason we should not return to normal is because our Lord has made plans to return one day and we don't know when that day will be. So we need to be prepared at all times. And right now, that means don't return to those things. that are abnormal. I'm reminded of a man who oversaw a large estate for an extraordinarily wealthy owner. One day that man was giving a friend a tour of the estate while the owner was gone. And when they sat down for lunch, the friend commented on how beautiful the gardens of that estate were. And the friend asked, when was the last time the owner was here? And the man said, about 10 years ago. So the friend followed that up with another question. He said, then why do you keep the gardens in such immaculate shape? And the man said, because I'm expecting him to return. And the friend said, oh, is he coming next week? And the man said, I don't know when he's coming, but I'm expecting him today. That's how we should live each day, expecting our Lord to return today. And that's why we can't go back to normal if our normal is anything less than God's ideal. See, today is a call to action. Today is a challenge to each of us. Before we get back to what used to be normal, let's consider whether or not we've normalized some things that aren't supposed to be normal. Right now, as you listen to this lesson, maybe your heart is pricked because you realize that your attitude towards your Christian responsibilities is is more have to than get to. Or, Or maybe you're listening today and you realize that you retreat to comfort zones way too much. And you need to step out with faith. Take on some tasks. Take on some responsibilities. Challenge yourself to do some things that you abnormally, or excuse me, that you normally would not. Or maybe today you're listening to this and you're thinking about Lot's wife and realizing that all too often you've allowed some sin to be normalized in your life. You're desensitized to it. You're tolerant of it. You've become accustomed to it. It's time to be abnormal. It's time to distance yourself from those things. It's time to, like David, acknowledge your sin before God and declare to Him how you're going to change and seek His assistance in doing so. I know we're not together in person, but there may be somebody out there right now who's listening to this and realize that they've got to repent They've got to return to the Lord right now. We encourage you to contact one of our ministers or one of our our shepherds. Email addresses are, I believe, available on this website. Feel free to reach out to any of us because we want to help you. If you're a member of this congregation, don't hesitate to call. It would be our honor to pray with you and for you. But maybe there's somebody out there right now who's listening to this and and realizing that they've never made the decision to become a child of God. And it's time for them to make that decision. If you need your sins forgiven, and if you want to enter into that abnormal life that serves him wholly, then all you've got to do is confess that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God. Repent of your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. It would be our honor to assist you in fulfilling that today. Whatever need you might have, whatever change God's Word is calling on you to make today, we encourage you to do do that before we return to normal.